I don't know if you've ever noticed um, or, or whether you like quizzes and if you come across those sort of quizzes where the answers seem very obvious and very confident you say, oh, well, they are, that's obvious and you put down the answer only to discover you've got it wrong because there's some subtle twist to it that you didn't uh, appreciate when you read the question. Um, there's a lot like that in the Bible, of course. Um, for example, uh, how many of Israel's children, if you remember he had 12 sons, how many of his sons um, actually received an allotment in the promised land? Well, he had 12 sons and there were 12 allotments of land made. So your immediate answer might be, well, 12, it's obvious. And then you start thinking, you think, well, hang around a minute, Levi never had an allotment, he wasn't given one. Um, Gad and Reuben had their allotments outside the promised land so that brings it down to eight and suddenly what seemed an obvious answer becomes a, a more complicated one and we have one here if I was to say to you what did God who, what name did God give to the first woman on planet earth uh, the, the immediate spontaneous answer probably certainly if you went outside and asked people if they had any idea at all they would probably say Eve and yet that is not the name that God gave to the first woman on earth. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, this is what we read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And the man, if you see it there, in the text, has got a capital M. It was the name God gave them. It's Adam. God called both of them Adam when he first made them. But then Adam turned to Eve and he gave her a new name, a name that he chose for her. And that wasn't Eve, that was woman, with a capital W. And that's because in the Hebrew, and it's the same in the English, of course, they sound very similar, man, woman. There's a link there because she was taken out of man. And it's not till later that he names her Eve. And we might think, but what a wonderful name for him to give her the mother of all living. And, and he gave her that name because the word uh, in Hebrew, Eve, sounds very much like a life giver and it resembles the word for living as only one, uh, was a case where there's two V's or one V changes it between living and Eve. And you think, well, what a, an appropriate name to give her because after all, every one of us on planet Earth today, if we went back through our family trees far enough, we get back to Eve. And yet that name was given her out of the most terrible experience that any woman has ever experienced in her lifetime. And I want us this morning for the few minutes we've got just to look at that experience that resulted in her being named Eve. And it starts here. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 2. Um, that's the first book in the Bible, so it's dead easy to find you about two pages into the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, and I'm just going to read from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And this is what we read. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Don't we live in an incredibly confused society today? And one that's becoming daily more confused and and more misled and and self-deceived. Now, God is not confused and God never has been. And what we have here is not necessarily our view of how it should be. It's certainly not society's view of how it should be, but it's absolutely God's purpose and plan and his declaration as to how it should be. What we see here is something that's absolutely beautiful. As we come to these verses, God's already created man, he's already created Adam, and as he looks at Adam there on planet Earth, and the Earth is perfect at that time, there's no competition amongst plants, there's no killing amongst the animals, it is an absolutely perfect environment. And yet as God looks at Adam there in that land, he recognises that Adam is incomplete. As he looks at Adam, he sees that Adam is missing something. There's a void in him. There's a need for someone that is like him, that he can have a relationship with, and there is nobody. He can have a relationship with God, and that's first and foremost, and that's wonderful. He can have some sort of relationship with the animals. He can care for them. He can pat them. He can, you know, walk around amongst them. But there is no one who is his intellectual equal. There is no one who he can exchange uh, love with. There's no one who he can exchange intelligent communication with. Within the creation. And God, out of his love for Adam, causes Adam to go into a sleep and takes one of his ribs from him and from that performs another unique act of creation by making this partner for Adam, this woman. Matthew Henry, who was a late 17th century um, Bible student, uh, commentator, he wrote a very famous Bible commentary. This is what he wrote in it concerning God taking a rib from Adam to make Eve. He says, she was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. That was how God chose to make Eve, or woman, a helpmate to Adam. Now what we're immediately told here is the reason why God did it. There was nobody else that was fit companion for Adam. Now the tragedy is that in our culture and our generation... This concept has been so rubbish, so belittled, that most women don't want anything to do with it, and most men don't believe it. Look, did you, did you see what's happening here? Man is helpless. Man is incomplete. Man is walking around saying, Duh, I'm on my own and I'm lonely. I, I need something more than what is here already in this creation. That's his heartbeat. 
And it's to meet that that God creates woman. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. God recognises that this incompleteness of man is not a good thing for him. It, it, it's something that he's, he's coping with, but it's, it's spoiling his otherwise full enjoyment of everything that God's created. He could enjoy it more, he could relate more, he could be more fulfilled if God were to make this further act of creation. And so God says, verse 18, I will make a helper fit for him. In verse 20 we read, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Listen to this, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. God is saying that for a man to be complete he needs woman. There is nothing else he can put in her place. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that stands in the place of a woman in relationship to a man. That is the way God designed it and intended it to be. My friends, isn't that an amazing statement concerning man without woman and God's purpose for putting woman here on the earth? That together they would be that perfect relational entity in which they both find joy and pleasure and satisfaction and mutual encouragement and mutual help and they go through life relating to each other and relating to God. That was how God purposed it, that was how God created it, that was how God intended it to be and then within that relationship that he would give the gift of children that they might be parents to the children, the children might be a blessing to them and he says in verse 24 of chapter 2 therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh that's an amazing picture isn't it and I I don't know that I understand fully what that one flesh includes but it certainly absolutely speaks of permanency it speaks of absolute unity it speaks of uh, inseparability it speaks of interdependence He says they will be as though they were just one being. What a challenge for our dysfunctional society in which we live today. What an opportunity for Christians to show out there what marriage is supposed to be. What a calling for each of us to live up to, to seek to attain that sort of relationship under God where we truly bless each other and we're blessed of God And we can have children and be a blessing to them and they can be a blessing to us. So what went wrong with this to cause Adam to change woman's name to Eve? Well, for that we need to go into chapter 3. Let's just read the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths indeed we could go on all the way down to verse 19 to look at what happened as a result of this incident here but we haven't really got time so I'm going to stop there at verse 7 Satan appears in appearance as a snake now we might think whoa I mean if you see a snake you tend to run a mile don't you or or sort of get away from it at that point the snake was the most beautiful of creatures and Satan comes in the appearance of the most beautiful creature that God's created there and he speaks and I guess Eve either hasn't realised at this point that animals don't speak or that just makes it even more attractive to her that wow this animal's speaking and she listens to what it says and this is what Satan says verse 1 did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden you might think well that's a pretty reasonable approximation to what God said massively different he's making a first of all doubt the word of God did God say are you sure you've got this right Eve are you sure that you're not misunderstanding God's intent here I mean did God really say that and then he's making a doubt the love of God Why would a God who loves you say you mustn't eat from a tree that's so attractive, that's got so lovely fruit on it? I mean, is is God just a killjoy? Is he just trying to spoil your fun here, Eve? I mean, did God really say you mustn't eat the fruit of this lovely tree that's in the garden? And he makes God sound so restrictive and oppressive, doesn't he? Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, would God do that? Put you here in this beautiful garden and say you mustn't eat of any of the trees. And of course God never said that. But he's making Eve question the word of God. He's making Eve doubt God's love towards her. He's making Eve think of God as someone horrible, someone oppressive, someone who's not looking out for her best interests. And then tragically, she shows how little she actually does understand what God said to her. Because she replies, verses 2 and 3, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And again you think, well that sounds pretty close to what God said. Well let's just put against it what God did say. For that we go back into the previous chapter, chapter 2, 16 to 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, so here's what God actually said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now although they sound quite similar, they are massively different. First of all, she adds to what God said. God never said you mustn't touch it. Where's that come from? God said you must not eat it. He didn't say you mustn't touch it. She's added that in. So she's added to what God said. Secondly, she diminishes God's provision and love for her. Did you notice that? 
What God had said is, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Now she translates that, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She's taken out the surely, she's taken out the every, she's restricting it down. She's making God less loving, less generous than God has been. And then thirdly, she diminishes God's warning. Did you notice that? She said, lest you die. She says that God said to us, we mustn't eat this fruit of this one tree, lest we die. What God had actually said was, you shall surely die. There was no maybe about it. There was no, you know, we're not too sure what's going to happen lest you die. God said, you will surely, certainly, absolutely die if you eat the fruit of that tree. My friend, this is where the danger always comes, isn't it? When we don't get what God has said absolutely right. That's why our society is in the mess it's in. That's why the churches in our lands are in the mess they're in. Because instead of taking what God has said and said, that's what God said, that's what we believe, that's how we live, we've said, well, maybe God doesn't mean it like that. And, and that would be very restrictive of God, and God's a God of love, so he would not mean that. So we'll just water that down or we'll take that out. And we're in a mess. And look at the mess she's in, because having gone down that route... She's now listening to saints, she's now engaging with saints, she's doubting God, she's questioning what he said, she's questioning his love and provision for her. And so Satan sees this gap opening and he gets his foot in there. And what does he say? Verse 4 and 5, the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. See, he knows what God said. He doesn't say, you know, it's not about lest you die. He says, I know what God said. God said, you'll surely die. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And as always, when Satan comes, there's an element of truth in what he says. I mean, if God sort of, if Satan sort of came into your mind, as he does, um, you you know, when you're out there in the street after the service and says, um, oh, the world's going to blow up today, you're going to probably say, a load of rubbish, I'm going to believe that. But he doesn't. The things he says seem so plausible. And there's a real element of truth in this. Their eyes will be opened. They will understand good and evil. And in that one regard, they will be like God, who understands and knows good and evil. But in every other regard, they will be as different to God as it's possible to be. Where God is holy, they'll be sinful. When God is pure, they will be totally contaminated. Where God is eternal, they'll be finite. Everything will change in their relationship to God. And instead of being like God, they'll be absolutely opposite of God. And then she moves from listening and debating to looking at this tree. The tree hasn't changed. She's seen it before. It's there in the middle of the garden. But now she's looking at it with a mind orientated by what Satan has said. So when she looks at it, what does she see? It appeals to her pleasures. She saw that the tree was good for food. Wow. Fancy some of that. It appeals to her senses. It was a delight to the eyes. 
Wow, it's beautiful. And it appealed to a pride. We will be like God. And we won't have to submit to God anymore. We won't have to do what God tells us anymore. We will be like God. We will be autonomous. We'll be able to do whatever we like without reference to our Creator because we will stand on an equal par with God. That's a thinking. So she takes of the tree and eats and gives it to Adam and he eats. And in that moment, everything changes in their relationship to God, in the world, in the physical world, and in humanity's relationship to God. And so we find ourselves in our generation and our culture being born in sin. We're, we're, we're twisted from before we're even born because of what Adam and Eve did. We, we come out of the womb with the wrong attitudes already in us. It amazes me with little babies, you know, they're, they're so lovely, aren't they? You know, and cute and, and you sort of poke them and they giggle and gurgle and do all sorts of things. Uh, but, you know, how long is it before they say no? And, and, you know, you're saying sit there and they run off over there and they just do everything. that. Where did that come from? Well, it's come out of them. It's come out of them because of what Adam and Eve did right back there in the garden. And so they're born with that twisted bias within them. Woman's going to have pain in childbirth from now on. Man's going to find work in the garden a, a pain we were doing gardening yesterday. I don't know how many people were gardening yesterday off the country, probably. I, I, I went to have a shower this morning. And my leg, back of my leg went, ah, I thought, what's that? Oh, got all cuts across it, haven't I? Because I, I was trying to burn. I had a bonfire down the bottom and I was burning these brambles we'd been pulling up and one of them got wrapped around my leg and, and sort of I, I went like that to try and shake it off and of course it scored all across the back of my leg. That's because of Adam and Eve. It wasn't how God created the world. So see, finally, the sacrifice of a substitute. You see, it might seem that at this point, it's their blackest day. What's going to happen? Just look at verses 20 to 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now what's happening there? God said, the day you eat of it, you'll die. Justice demands that they die. God has got absolutely every right to kill them there and then. But instead he acts in grace and mercy. Instead of him saying to you, you knew the rule, you've disobeyed, justice demands that I kill you, and he kills them. Instead of that, what is it that he said to the woman? I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bear children. Bring forth children, verse 16. God instead says to the woman, hey, you're going to have children. In other words, they're not going to die today. They've got a future. And it's in light of that that Adam turns around and says, I'll name you Eve. I'll rename you Eve because you're the mother of all that are going to be born. You're the mother of all living. That's how they all live happily ever after. Well, not quite. Because Adam and Eve had a problem because they've disobeyed God and they've sinned. That's what sin is, to rebel against God. But now it's God that's got the problem because God hasn't done what justice demands. And God is a just God. God cannot be unjust. 
And you say, but he is unjust, he's just not killed them. So God shows them that he's now got a problem by killing this animal and clothing them in this animal's skin. And they'd never understood death before this. They had no concept what death is until suddenly there's a dead animal. And God says, that's where you should be right now. But he takes the skin off this animal and covers them with it. And it's a picture that God has now got a problem that can only be dealt with by an innocent dying in their place. And of course it's a picture that points forwards to Christ. Because Adam and Eve's problem is the same problem that you've got and I've got. That we have rebelled against God. You say, well, I've never eaten the fruit of the tree. I know. But you've not lived as God called you to live any more than I have. I mean, can you honestly say that since the day you were born, every day you've woken up with a desire to worship God? That every day you've said, God, what do you want me to do with my day today? You created me. You've put me here. How do you want me to spend it? That every day you've loved God with all your heart, mind and soul. That every day you've loved your neighbour as much as you've loved yourself. I'm sure you're honest enough as I am to, to admit, no, I've definitely not done that. Well, that's sin. So we've got the same problem that Adam and Eve had. And God would say to us the same as he said to them, I don't want to bring justice on you. I would much rather act in grace towards you, but for that to happen, a substitute has got to die. And what we discover in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ comes into the world to be that substitute. That he who is himself God chooses to come into this planet, taking our nature, flesh and blood, just like us, in order that he might die as our substitute in order that he might die the death that we deserve and that God the Father might punish him instead of punishing us. And what the Bible makes clear is that he went to the cross and as he hanged there upon the cross in the agony of that death, that crucifixion, God the Father pours out on him his righteous anger. Not against what Jesus had done, for he'd lived a perfect life but against what each and every person who in their lifetimes will put their trust in Christ have done in order that we might be forgiven. That is amazing grace. So Jesus becomes the great rescuer. Jesus becomes the one and only person by whom we can come to the Father, by whom we can come to heaven. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, how politically incorrect is that in our day and age? But that's what God says. And we either accept that or we do like Eve did and twist it and make it untrue. I don't know about you, but I'd rather accept what God says and believe it. And God says... The wages of sin are death. Eternal living death. That is horrific. But God says, just as he said to Adam and Eve, my desire is not to bring justice on you. My desire is to forgive. My desire is to show my grace towards you. And in order that I can do that, Christ has come. 
Christ has died in order that you might be forgiven. But what it requires is that we recognize, first of all, that we need his forgiveness. We recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that we're without hope. And we put our trust in what Jesus Christ has done. And we choose to turn away from that selfish life of me pleasing me to a life of me seeking to please God by his empowering. And I say, from here on, God, I want to do it your way. My friend, have you done that? Everything hinges on that. Without that, you're still in your sin, according to the Bible. Without that, you've got no hope on the day that you stand before God in judgment. If you've done that genuinely from your heart and yielded your life to Christ, you are covered not by an animal's skin, but by the blood of Christ himself. I'm going to pray. And then um, we're going to sing our last hymn. And then while we're singing that, uh, the little things we've brought through for the mums and hopefully the youngsters will come down from crash and we'll, um, we'll be giving those out. Let's first pray.